Chapter One of Black Paul. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. Black Paul by Ben Ames Williams. Chapter One. Spies, a born lover who would never learn the way of the sea, bungled his simple share of the task of getting the mate's boat away. Black Paul, master of the schooner, was nearby, and he cuffed the man. It was good-natured enough, and Black Paul laughed as he administered it. Nevertheless, it knocked Spies end over end. The man got up, grumbling, and Red Paul, the captain's son and mate, said sharply to his father, "'I'll handle my boat and my men, sir. Let them be.' Black Paul laughed again. "'Fiddle, boy,' he retorted. If you knew your job, you'd have Spies trained before this. He's been thirty months on your hands. Keep your fists off my men, Red Paul repeated sullenly, and Black Paul frowned. Get your boat away, he ordered, and stop your mouth. They had worked into the bay that morning, threading the intricate passages between the islands and the reefs, with a familiarity that showed Black Paul knew his way about. Not that the passage was difficult, there was always room and to spare. But an ignorant man might well have taken a short way through blue water and piled up on a slumbering reef. Black Paul was not ignorant where these waters were concerned. He had made this anchorage a full score of times in his years upon the sea. Where the schooner now lay, there was a beauty all about them, the unmeasured and profligate beauty of the tropics that appealed to every sense a man possessed. The eye was drunk with it, the air was richly heavy with a fragrance that caressed the nostrils. The stirring currents of this air brought faint, far bird songs and the musical tones of the natives, and blended them in a symphony to which the murmuring sea lent undertone. The touch of the sun and of the sun-warmed wind was as caressing as the touch of a woman's hand, and to the fifth sense of men hardened to salt horse and the rough fare of the sea, the fruit the natives brought was delight unutterable. Beauty made for the eye, the ear, the nose, the hand, the tongue. This lay all about them. The islands were picturesque, densely wooded, and pleasantly broken by steep cliffs and reaches of bare rock. They had an appearance of permanence and strength that was welcome to eyes which had looked too long on coral atolls that barely topped the sea. The bay where the schooner lay was perfectly sheltered. A mile away, the beach lay white as silver snow. To right and left, protecting horns of land came down steeply to the water, and were wooded to the rippling edge. Along the beach were ranged a few native houses, all but hidden among the orange trees and the palms. Those who had seen it will know the spot, the Vauvau group, ten miles or so from what passed for the town. The native canoes were swarming out toward the schooner, the islanders laughing and calling like children, like amiable children, anxious to make friends. Their narrow dugouts, with the balancing outrigger, were deeply loaded with enough fruit and provender for a fleet. There was no need to barter for food. Once the islanders saw that the schooner was friendly, the stuff was heaped aboard. Huge oranges, great bunches of gold and green bananas, coconuts by the cluster, a fowl or two. One man laughingly slung aboard a pig, its feet trigged fast with strands of fibre. 
and it lay in the waste and squealed and squealed, kicking helplessly where it lay. These were unspoiled folk, they lived in a land of plenty, flowing with what passed for milk and honey. But there were no pearls, no treasures to bring the traders flocking here, nothing but the abundant food. They told Black Paul, in their broken tongue, that no vessel had anchored in this bay for three years past. They were unqualifiedly delighted to make the schooner welcome, and help her take aboard the wood and water which she needed for the homeward voyage just beginning. There were loose folds of a cloth made of bark, this scant garb supplemented here and there by shirts or trousers of obviously occidental origin. The women and the children stayed in the canoes, and no man came aboard the schooner without first donning some such garment of civilization. Many of the men knew Black Paul, and they stood before him. He had taken his post at the break of the quarter-deck, and looked kindly down upon them, and told him many things, many bits of news of themselves and of the islands. Red Paul and the second mate, each with his boat, had gone ashore for water and for wood. One thing they told Black Paul, which led him to question them at length, and when he knew all they could tell him, he took his glass and watched the beach a mile away where his son had landed. A tall islander pointed out to him a flutter of white, a woman's skirt. He nodded and watched and saw the woman and a black-garbed man approach Red Paul and talk with him. He lowered his glass and continued to question the natives with an occasional glance toward the beach. Some of the younger men from the island were investigating the schooner, clustering here and there at the sharp cries of wonder and surprise which were uttered when some adventurer made a new and more marvellous discovery. Yet the Deborah Hoare was not remarkable. A two-masted whaler, with full casks, after close on three years in the South Pacific, she was dingy with the smoke and soot that marred her canvas, and her hull bore the hard marks of wear. Now all the canvas was down and furled, except the mainsail. They would be working out again this afternoon, no need of lowering that. The decks were scrubbed white, and reasonably clear of the litter of gear which, seemingly disorderly, yet is the height of order. The blacks studied the big windlass and bits, forward. They climbed over and around the cold tryworks. They peered down the main hatch, and adventured into the forecastle and admired from a respectful distance the three long whale-boats on the bearers along either rail, and on skids at the stern. These boats, tools of the Deborah's epic trade, were almost half as long as the schooner herself. They were, moreover, as seaworthy as many a larger craft, and save only perhaps the dory of the fishing fleet, they would outride any other type of small boat that white men know. The two at the rails were just to beam the break in the deck, the stern boat lay crosswise, lashed in place upon the skids. A larger craft of the Deborah's sort would have had one or two spare boats stowed on the boathouse just forward of the mizzenmast. But the Deborah's spares, if she had had any, would have been a thwartship, on the skids, aft. As it was, she had none. The third mate and his boat had been lost in the killing of the last whales, and the schooner was going home with only two officers besides Black Paul. The third mate's widow in Nantucket would get his lay, along with his sea-chest and the sparse belongings in his cabin. Black Paul saw his son's boat put off at last from the beach, and start for the schooner. 
He roared good-humouredly at the blacks and drove them overside. They went, giggling and laughing. Black Paul was a tall, lean man, with a big framework of bones insufficiently covered with flesh. Nevertheless, there was strength in his stringy arms and his lank legs and his gaunt torso. He had got his name of Black instead of Dan Paul, in the days when his head was crowned with a shock of ebony. Now that shock of hair was iron-gray, almost white. Beneath it, the bold black eyes of the man gazed mockingly at the world. He was known for a bold man, and a cold one. He laughed much, but when he laughed, it was as though he mocked himself and all the world. He had suffered. His face told that. He still suffered. The mark of it was alive in his eyes. There were whispers about him, at which he laughed. His son, Red Paul, they had been christened so by the men of the sea, for it was necessary to have a mark that would distinguish one from the other. His son was his opposite. Three inches shorter than his father, and reputed to be thrice as strong, he was red of hair, red of countenance, morose and sullen in speech, an unsmiling man. Whereas Black Paul had friends everywhere, and enemies everywhere, Red Paul had no friends and no enemies, but men disliked and avoided him, and wondered why Black Paul had him about. I'd break his neck, even if he were my son, they said. Black Paul told someone once, in a jocular mood, that Red was a penance. I bear him like the load of my sins about my neck, he said, and laughed his mirthless laugh. There had always been enmity between father and son. Red was in his twenties now, Black Paul was close to fifty. And for three months past, Red had been taking occasion to balk his father, to come between Black Paul and the men, to seek strife. At such times Black Paul laughed at him, but when he was alone, and thought upon the matter, he frowned with a weary anxiety. If it had been another man, Black Paul would have destroyed him and had done with it. Yet it was not because Red was his son that he held his hand. It was some stronger feeling. He disliked Red, son or no son, as much as the others did. There may have been some truth in the reason for his forbearance, which he had given, when he spoke, laughingly, of his own sins. It is a hard and ugly thing for a father to recognize his own evil self in his son. Red Paul's boat was nearing the schooner. It drove in a hairline, deviating no wit, and the natives in the canoes scattered before it with shrieks of laughing consternation. One was slow. The whaleboat sheared away the outrigger, and the canoe spun around and filled. Red called over his shoulder, "'Keep clear there, you swine!' but it was hardly worth while to swear at these islanders. They shouted with mirth at the misadventure. A trio of paddlers hauled the occupants of the wrecked canoe into their own craft, and Red Paul's boat slid alongside the Deborah. Black Paul, on the quarter, saw that the man and the woman were in Red's boat. The man was elderly, clothed in black. The captain knew the breed of the church. The woman, he saw, was young. Red and his boat-steerer steadied the boat while the missionary climbed to the deck. He reached down and took the girl by both hands, and she stepped lightly up to a place by his side. Red said morosely, "'Ask Captain Paul.' The missionary looked aft and saw Black Paul on his quarter-deck. He turned to the girl and smiled, and said, "'Come.' 
They walked side by side toward the starboard deck steps. Blackpaul studied them as they approached, but made no move to meet them. The missionary stood aside to let the girl climb to the quarter, then followed her and approached Blackpaul. He was an old man, with white hair, and kindly eyes and lips, a man mellowed by right living and right thinking, a broad man, without cant and without guile. This was written plain in his face. But that spirit of mockery which lived in Black Paul moved him to say in greeting, "'Good morning, father.' He knew quite well that this missionary was not of that church which is father and mother to her people. He also knew that clergy of another cloth, if they are meanly made, resent the appellation he had given this man. But the missionary only smiled, and said in his gentle, firm tones, without a note of pique, "'Good morning, Captain Paul.' And by this Black Paul knew him for a man, and thrust out his big hand. They gripped. "'My name is Samuel Poor,' the missionary said, "'and this is Ruth Lytton.' He gestured toward the girl, and Black Paul, turning, saw her at close range, and his heart for an instant stood still. She was tall and strongly made, and sweetly. Further, she was beautiful, but there was something else in her face, and in her eyes, which pierced the captain's consciousness. For an instant his face was a mask of tragedy. The missionary was looking at the girl, and did not see but the girl saw and was troubled. Then Black Paul smiled. There was beauty in the man when he smiled, beauty and the radiance of strength, and the glory of audacity. He took her hand. Ruth Lytton? he repeated. Yes, said the missionary. The girl studied this tall man who held her hand, and because she was brave, she asked him, Why were you unhappy when you saw me? Unhappy? Black Paul flung back his head and laughed. I am never unhappy. There is nothing worth unhappiness. Why? she repeated. His eyes met hers evenly, and a spark flashed between them. He touched her hand, which he still held with his left, then dropped it. You are like someone I have known, he said almost as if to himself, a little. That was my first thought. It is gone now. I was wrong a fancy that comes to me often, the notion that the women I meet are like someone I have known. He turned to the missionary, and the girl stepped back a little, but still watching him, as though she could not take her eyes away from him. Yet this was not strange, for Black Paul was a man whom men and women anywhere would stop to look at twice. He asked the missionary now, What can I do for you? Miss Lytton and I want passage home with you. Black Paul chuckled. There are passenger ships touching at the islands. Why choose the Deborah? It should be cheaper, said the missionary. We have not the money for the more expensive way. How do you know it will be cheaper? We count on your good nature, Captain Paul. Himself an audacious man, the captain admired audacity in others. You have courage, sir, he said. I know men, was the missionary's quiet reply. Where are your belongings? On the beach. I'll send for them. The missionary smiled. No need for you to send, he said. I will. He stepped to the rail and called to the nearest canoe. Half a dozen thrust toward the schooner, and the missionary spoke to the men in them. 
They darted shoreward, racing. The missionary looked after them, his eyes shaded beneath the wide rim of his hat. Other canoes pressed together below him, and he talked cheerily to their occupants. A woman began to wail, and the missionary called down reassurance to her. The girl turned to the captain, who had watched the little scene with her. "'They love him,' she commented. "'They are sorry he is going away.' A man saw her, and, grinning, shouted something. She smiled and lifted her hand. "'They love you, too,' Black Paul said. "'That is easy seen.' She nodded. "'Yes,' she replied. "'And I them.' The captain studied her with a sidelong glance, measuring her profile, and marking the shape of her forehead and of eye, and upon his face that tragic mask again descended. But when she turned toward him, he flung it off with a laugh. They leaned against the rail, side by side, talking idly. About the schooner the canoes threaded their expert way. Amidships, stores of wood were coming aboard. The second mate's boat approached the Deborah, towing casks of water. Red Paul set men to rig tackle to swing the casks aboard. The gear creaked as the booms swung back and forth with each lift and fall of the schooner beneath them. Above their heads the mainsail flapped. The cries of the islanders rose softly, their musical tones smothering the harsh commands of the mate. The second mate's boat was nearing. With her eyes upon it, the girl asked, Who is the officer in that boat? Dan Darren. Black Paul told her, my second mate, a fine boy. He chuckled teasingly, and you're rosy already at the sight of him. I'm not, she denied, her cheeks refuting her denial. A fine boy, declared Black Paul again. End of chapter 1